Good morning, Godspeak family. It's great to uh, be with you and share God's Word. I'm just excited about all that God is doing. The title of our message today is Children of Liberty, because that's really what we want to be, is we want to be liberated through our faith in Christ who uh, conquered sin and death so that we can walk in an intimacy with the Father. And we also want to have the liberty that our founding fathers built into the Constitution. So we have to dust off a couple of things, Um, not only God's Word for those who haven't been digging into it, and also the Declaration of Independence and um, the Constitution. And as I thought about this, you know, it's uh, back in the day when this whole experiment of America began, there was a, quote, slash philosopher that came from France to check out the liberty of the United States. And this is his observation. He writes it in Democracy in America. Alexis de Tocqueville was his name. He says this, nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. You see, you, everybody wants to be free, but once you're totally free... Some people don't know how to handle that liberty and that freedom. Take the 18-year-old that's had wonderful parents, they have boundaries, they have uh, just those things, and then they go off to school and they go off the rails, right? Woohoo! Freedom! So they spent all of their money in the first month. You had to bail them out of jail, right? And for some, you admitted them into detox. I mean, it's, well, you got freedom now. What are you going to do with that freedom? And freedom is a, a, a strange conundrum. I, being a pastor for 31 years, there were people that I knew that for decades could live the Christian life in prison, but every time they got out, they were right back in, right? Because they got liberty and they got freedom as long as, you know, they tell them when to get up, when to go to bed, when to turn off the lights, they're confined. In the experiment of liberty in the United States of America, The Constitution is like the guardrails, if you will, to keep us in the lane of liberty. In our Christian life, God's Word gives us that direction, as it says in Psalms. God's Word is a, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path to show us how to navigate. I want to talk about, as we begin, before we talk about being children of liberty, we really have to talk about the elephant in the room after a very tough season in our nation, a very tough week. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when desire comes, it is a tree of life. Some of our hearts are sick in this season. Just raise your hand if you just feel a little sick inside. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to be real raw with you and real honest this week because, well, that's just the way I'm wired. Uh, it doesn't always turn out well for me, but... Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, through the inauguration on Wednesday and when you're fighting for liberty and you see a candidate that you see is going to take away liberty, I I literally felt nauseated to my stomach. I felt sick to my stomach. And uh, not that that's right or wrong, I'm just just being real with you that I'm a human just like you and I I see what's going on. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When Good people are leading in liberty. You know, my, my dad, he calls it a hallelujah breakdown, you know. <laughs> but what's the rest of that verse say? But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. 
So just to relieve all of that pressure, we're going to have one big groan together just to clear the air. Because none of us are really going to listen to me until we get that groan out, you know what I mean? All right? On the count of three, we're just going to give a good whoa, cleansing groan, because that's what Solomon tells us is a good thing, right? One, two, three. Oh, that reverberated through the room, didn't it? That came all the way from your toes. I could just feel it going all the way out. Okay, so we deal with the elephant in the room. We have a uh, new president in President Biden and Vice President Harris. And the thing is, is that Bob McEwen, wonderful brother in the Lord, a wonderful uh, government leader for years, he tells, uh, this is a, a quote that Jack Hibbs used in his interview this week with Charlie Kirk. He said, conservatives fight until they lose, then they give up. And, and I would testify that that's true. You know, you, you swing for the fence, and when we lose, we just want to roll over and give up. But he said, but those who are progressives or to the left, they fight until they win, and then they just keep winning. They keep fighting. So you see, there's a different mindset, and we really have to be tenacious like the left, that they just keep fighting until they win. Now, now that we're the underdog, we have to fight our way back and keep fighting until we win. And I mean through prayer and through getting involved with our communities and organizing and changing political uh, individuals so that they'll change policies. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a process in the American government and the American way of life. But I've had people... As Rob said, to introduce things, I've had a lot of people say, man, why would you want to bring kids into this world, right? With corona, shut down, and kids in this world. Do you know that the, uh, there's a baby boom in America that's coming? They're going to call them the corona babies. Uh, there's, it's 2 to 3% more births, right? Because if you're on lockdown, you're just having fun, <laughs> Right? And so uh, there's going to be more children born than in uh, past years recent of late because of that. And I want you to just really be encouraged because children of promise, all the way through the scriptures, do you know God's answer to hardships and tragedy and difficulties at a national level and at a family level? Oftentimes, God's answer, and this is the long game, is a baby. Our nation needs help. The Lord goes, ah, here, have this baby. You're like, that's going to be like 20 years till effectiveness, right? <laughs> and that's what I call the long game. But God's into the long game because he sees how things are going to go. I just needed some encouragement for my soul. And I reflected on that time, you know, that time that your wife is having your, your baby. Right there at that moment, they're not having the conversation Hey, honey, you're giving birth to the next George Washington or Billy Graham of America. She said, no, I'm not, and this is all your fault, so shut up, you know, <laughs> at that moment. And then the child comes, and then they have the love sandwich, you know. It's like, this is our child. We're going to protect this baby. This, mm, it's like that, that moment, and there's that little girl. And then you tell your child they're going to change the world. No, really, really, you're going to change the world. No. No pressure, right? No pressure whatsoever. And then you have a beautiful child. As a matter of fact, Moses is probably the greatest example of God's long game in all of Scripture. 
because the people were groaning under the burden and bondage of tyranny from Pharaoh, who was working them. They were slaves, and he had brought hard bondage to them. And God's answer to their groan and their cry and their prayer was a beautiful baby boy by the name of Moses, according to the book of Exodus. And not only is it the long game because the baby boy shows up on the scene, but more than that, he grows up in Pharaoh's household and he thinks that people are going to understand he's the deliverer at the age of 40. He goes to visit the Jews and as he's out there, two of the, uh, a uh, so, uh, soldier or officer is beating one of the Hebrews. And so Moses, it says, he looked to the right and he looked to the left and he killed the guy and buried him in the sand. He's like, I'm here to deliver, you know. It didn't work out so well because then the next day when he went out and he saw two Hebrew guys fighting, he said, hey, you guys, you're brothers. Why are you fighting? And they said, hey, this is none of your business. You're not a ruler or a judge. What are you going to do? Kill us like you did the soldier yesterday and buried him in the sand? And he's like, uh-oh, I'm found out. When Moses was out of God's timing, he couldn't bury one soldier in the sand and get away with it. But when he was on time with God, 40 years later, he buried the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea in one day, right? It's the difference of timing. He got ahead of God's timing. So I want you to know that God's in for the long game. And you might say, well, what do you mean the long game? We don't have time for the long game. No, we do because God's in charge. I was in San Jose, and as Pastor Rob mentioned, we're going back up this Thursday because last Thursday we were, they were in court, and uh, they have these incredible fines, and because of the fines and the charge is contempt of court, even though the judge was emphatic last week that we're not talking about jail time, still it is within the judge's uh, realm of authority to give them the five days that comes with contempt of court. And so we're there, and just think, ladies, for a moment, step into my shoes. You've got a newborn baby. And, uh, not in my shoes, into this mom's shoes, and your husband's in court, and you're not sure if they're going to arrest him for simply being a pastor. They're releasing 1,800 prisoners, some of them violent, down in Orange County. Yesterday it says they release, they're going to release all 14,000 of the illegal immigrants that are here, and yet they're dragging pastors that are singing praise songs and teaching the Bible into court. The Bible says, woe unto a people when they call evil good and good evil. And that's where we are as a nation. They're going to let criminals go free, and they're going to drag preachers into court. Here's a, here's a, and what I mean by children of liberty, listen to this mom and wife's heart and her precious little girl, Ivy, on the court steps. Her husband has $22,000 in fines. She's only 22 or 23 years of age. Hear from the lips of Megan and their little girl. This is what I'm talking about, the next generation, children of liberty. Hey guys, I'm here with Megan Atherley. Her husband's in there fighting the good fight, Carson, in the courtroom. And I just want to hear from a wife's perspective, what's going on in your heart? Your husband's in there making a stand for Jesus, girl. Yes, um, well, I'm just excited to be a part of what the Lord is doing. The Lord has just comforted um, both Carson and my heart. He has spoken to us and we are just so excited and we just don't even 
feel worthy to be just a part of what he has us being a part of and we are just so grateful for the Lord and we are ready to be bound in chains and to give up our lives for the Lord Jesus and for his work and um, you know our heart is just totally flooded with the peace of the Lord and his grace is just covering us and um, we are just beyond blessed and, and privileged um, to be serving him the way that he is allowing us to serve him. Wow so if you got that kind of support guys you can take on anything because your wife's willing to be a pen pal to you. If you're in jail, right? Yeah. <laughs> Paul wrote letters, he can write a book in there, right? Exactly. <laughs> he, can get, he can have a jail ministry, be really fruitful. And you got to get a picture of Ivy because Ivy's here in full support of Pop, okay? <laughs> She's down here. She's going to be able to say that she cut her teeth, which she doesn't have any teeth yet, on the courthouse steps to be civilly disobedient and to stand for Jesus as a little kid. Isn't that awesome? So all these people are out there and, and they're listening to the wife's live stream across the country. They're praying for you. What would you want to say to them? Thank you guys so much for all the prayer, for all the love. I've been just, my phone has been flooded with all these people texting me saying that they're praying and um, I, I feel the prayers. There's just a supernatural peace that is um, just flooding me and Carson and um, and I know it's, it's just directly related to your prayers and um, the Lord hears our prayers and his hand is moved by prayers and um, I'm just so grateful that the body is joining together in unity, um, praying for, for the Lord and praying for the Lord to work and for us and so thank you guys so much. Who would have known, you remember the first day that you guys got here and yeah. I met you and I took you because you wanted to go to In-N-Out, right? we, we went to In-N-Out. And this is in late July yeah. of 2019. Yeah. And we were just like, oh, here's Carson and Megan. And Ivy's not even on the scene yet. And who would have thought that we're on the courthouse steps, not eating in and out? But we were eating fries earlier today, weren't yeah, we? we? Were. But it was Chick-fil-A today. Chick-fil-A. <laughs> hey, Pastor Rick Brown up at Santa Clara Superior Court. Pastor Carson, Pastor Mike McClure in there. This is the lovely Megan and their precious daughter, Ivy. God bless. God bless you. If you didn't see all the video footage from the Friday night fireside chat, I encourage you to log on to it. There are other pastors have testimonies that are just blowing our minds about what's going on up in this area, up in San Jose, because they really pride themselves. In the, that's the heart of the cancel culture, you guys. Because that's where Apple, that's where Facebook, that's where every, everybody is. They are the least churched area in all of America. Only 3% of people have any kind of church affiliation. Think of it, 97% of people are uh, unchurched or not connected in the Silicon Valley. Well, we want to share with you, and uh, I forgot to have them hand out the Bibles, but we're going to go ahead and stand, and we're just going to read God's Word. Stand with me for our passage. Scripture from Psalm 127. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 5 for our message, Children of Liberty. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Father, you ask us to pray for those who are in authority that we might live peaceful lives. 
And Lord, as we're praying now, we are asking that you open our eyes from your word that we see wonderful things. And Lord, we are praying for our president and vice president and Congress and Governor Newsom and our local officials. Lord, we pray that your grace would be poured out upon them, that they would get wisdom from heaven, that they would fall to their knees and confess Jesus is Lord, and that they would lead us, your people, into a greater experience of liberty. Lord, bring the awareness to them that the liberty are going out the door as they bring the confining bondage of tyranny to our lives. Lord, we pray for them that you would bless them with this kind of wisdom to lead us in a way as a nation to continue having a platform to share your love, Lord Jesus, with our neighbors. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the scriptures declare that like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of guys. Anybody that has, I have children and I have grandchildren, and it's like an archer that pulls out his arrow and he strings it in his bow, and he's going to shoot that child, that son or that daughter, in a direction towards the Lord and towards doing good on planet Earth. And so that's why we're excited about the next generation because of what God is going to do through our children. As I mentioned, so often when God's people are praying for liberty to return where bondage has encroached, it is the answer of children, teenagers that step up and do the heavy lifting because it has to be that next generation. And as rightly been said, if you want your children to go far like an archer, you have to aim high. If you point them at the Lord, then that arrow is going to fly farther than if you just hold it on the level playing field. So we want to share with our children about the liberty we have in the Lord, and they also will experience the liberty as we share with them what it means to be a citizen of the United States of America. And granted, in most peaceful times, we don't feel the urgency to do that. But now it is truly that kind of urgency that we're experiencing. It tells us that happy is the man who has his quiver full of them, speaking of children, so that you can shoot those areas, those arrows in a lot of directions. Well, what's a quiver full? Well, somebody has said, you know your quiver is full when you fully quiver, <laughs> right? Parents know what I mean. It's like, the, hey, this is it, we're done. <laughs> Finito, <laughs> this is... As, as much as I can do in this, be fruitful and multiply. But all through the scriptures, we see connected to the birth of a child what God wants to do. And this age will be no different. We just don't know their names yet sometimes. We don't know how they're going to step up. In Genesis 4.26, it tells us, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Enosh comes into this world in the backwash of family tragedy, you see, because Seth was born after Cain killed his brother Abel, and they had a family tragedy. Can you imagine, moms and dads, one of your sons killing another one of your sons and what that must do to your soul? Wouldn't you want to give up on kids all the time? I mean, like, who wants these kids? They just kill each other, right? But they have another son, and when he's born, he's not killing someone people, he inspires others, hey, you should pray and seek God. That's what e Enosh's ministry was. People turn back to God in prayer. 
When Noah was born, in Genesis 5.29, it says, He called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. He named Noah, which means his, uh, comfort, because he was going to comfort God's people. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling them, yeah, I'm comforting you now. Get right with God because judgment is coming. And we know the, the boat came or the, the flood came as he built that ark. You see, Noah had a purpose in what God's design and plan. When the Lord told Abraham that he was going to be an entire nation, imagine that calling. God just talks to you as a man and says, you know what? An entire nation is going to be named after you. Say, what? Because Abram's name, which is kind of comical, what was Abram's name? What did it mean? It meant, <laughs> it meant father of a multitude. People ask him his name. What's your name? Father of a multitude. How many kids you got? Zip. Zero. Got no kids. And then God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Makes it even worse. <laughs> what your name mean now? Not father of multitude, father of nations, like multiple nations. Got any kids yet? No. Zip. Zero. No kids. I thought you were God's promised servant. What was the answer to his lineage and the family that's going to go forward? Was a child. Now, the Lord comes in the right timing. He's letting, this is according to Romans, Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans chapter 4, God was waiting for Abram, Abraham and Sarah's bodies to be fully dead reproductively. Sarah goes through menopause, no more kids. <laughs> and God shows up when Sarah's 89 years old, ladies, think of it. Do we have anybody in the room 89 or older? Raise your hand. Nada. No. So imagine... God tells you, she's 89, and her husband, Abram, he's exactly 10 years older than her. He's 99. And the Lord says, yeah, it's about time. Both of you couldn't reproduce an apricot, let alone a child. <laughs> you guys got nothing going on reproductively. And the Lord said, now it's the right time because God was going to do a miracle and bring a child. Now, when God told him that, Sarah was hiding in the tent, and she's eavesdropping. And when the Lord told Abraham that out by the campfire, she laughed. <laughs> Imagine living in assisted living and now you're pregnant in assisted living. <laughs> you and your husband. Now, when the child's going to be born, she's 90 and he's 100. Can you, now, if you, I know, the, I know some 90-year-olds and I know some 100-year-olds, and if they're pushing anything, right, and if you saw them on the street with a stroller, you would look at them in their age, and you would say, is this a great, great, the greatest of all grandchildren in that basket? He's like, no, it's our first. <laughs> right? You're 90 and 100 years of age. <clears throat> Talk about blow your mind. But that was God's answer to create an entire nation. An entire nation, the growth of it and the birth of it, and the multiplication of it was based upon one child that when God told them what was going to happen, they laughed out loud. So when he's born, what do they call him? Laughter. Isaac, that's what it means. It's like, well, we might as well call him laughter. Every time we say his name, we smile that we're so old that we have this kid. That's what it says in Genesis 21.3. Abraham called the name of his son Isaac. Laughter. Because you see, previous to that, when God told them they were going to have a child... The Lord challenged him, and he said this in Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Honestly, guys, when I get overwhelmed like I have been this last year, I just go, 
wow, don't you just, when faith starts going out the door and you start feeling fearful or you are filled with doubt, you just go, it's too big, you guys. It's all over. It's hopeless. We're toast. I'm sure you guys are filled with faith. You never had those thoughts. I had those thoughts. And the Lord, whenever faith comes in, fear gets pushed out. And when fear comes in, faith gets pushed out. So you and I, we need to walk in faith, hope, and love. And that's why we get together once a week so we can infuse us with faith, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Is any, I just want to ask you, because this is a rhetorical question from the Lord. Is anything too hard for God? Is it too hard for God to produce a revival among God's people? Is it too hard to uh, produce a revival of liberty among the citizens of the United States of America? Absolutely not. Why? Because we serve a huge God. He is able. Right? Amen. But even grandparents are so important with the kids coming into play. We have this story in Ruth, chapter 4, verse 17. It says, also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, this is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. God even shows in his word that even great-grandparents and grandparents are so vital in raising up that next generation because we can be praying for our children. I'm praying for my children and my grandchildren all the time. How about you? The reason I'm here preaching today is because I had a couple of grandmothers that prayed my wretched, heathen, little hide into salvation. I tell people, if you've got grandmas praying for you, just give up. Because they're not going to shut up, so you better just give up. You can just hear the hounds of heaven hunting you down. Oh! I mean, you're trying to run, and it's, it's hard to get away from the prayers of moms, dads, grandpas, and grandmas. So don't think it's a foregone con- conclusion, even if your grandkids are in bad shape right now. My grandparents saw me get in nothing but trouble in school and with the law the whole time I grew up. I was on probation in the third grade. I don't know how you get on probation on the third grip. Well, I do know. You start a wildfire and burn up a bunch of people's stuff. Never mind. Moving on. I'm in jail for grand larceny at the age of 15. I'm kicked out of school pretty much every year for the last six years of school. I was suspended for a three-day period of time almost every single day or every single year for those six years of school from 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. As in my 12th grade or year, I was going to be expelled for good because I consistently was in so much trouble. And if it hadn't been for a high school friend that was a classmate of my mother's that went to bat, she was on the school board, she went to bat for me and kept me in school. Otherwise, I was gone. You know, my grandparents just kept praying for me. And at the age of 19, I gave my life to Jesus. And God began to change me. And he made me passionate about my relationship with Jesus. Because you see, my nature and my personality is, my mom said, I came into this world without a stop sign. You know what I mean? Whatever's in front of me, I just do it full tilt. And if it was bad things, it was full tilt. Whether it was drugs or alcohol or violence or, it didn't matter. Whatever is in front of me, I'm full tilt. So then when God saves me, what is it? It's full tilt. <laughs> so it's a good thing, right? But in pointed in a wrong direction, I would have been like, a drug lord killed by the age of 31 or something. You see, parents make the difference and grandparents make the difference because in the story, 
that Ruth and Naomi, these both widowed mom and grandma, Ruth has this child, and that child is with a guy by the name of Boaz. Incredible love story about God's grace. And then they have this son by the name of Obed, and Obed has a son by the name of Jesse, and then Jesse has the greatest king ever for the nation of Israel, King David. And the Lord sees fit to put it in the chronology so that you know it came from these people of faith. It came from these people of faith. And what was David going to come do? He was going to come bring liberty from the bondage of the Philistines that dominated his people. You never know when you're raising kids and grandkids what God is going to do in their lives. But faith, hope, and love will be looking at them and praying for them and seeing the greatest potential. That's why I love looking at small children and just seeing what they're going to be. I wanted my older brother, who's the closest thing to me, not only genetically, but just how our hearts are. When I pastored a a church, I started a school, and there was a point where the school grew, and I couldn't do both, be the principal of the school and the pastor. So I had my older brother, because my older brother, he's this horse trainer. It's like he's, he's tough as shoe leather. He's like the, if the Marlboro man got saved, that's my brother, okay? And he just walked through the hallways and his passionate for Jesus and his joy that is contagious. And he loved these little kids. And all the time, parents would tell me, they got a six-year-old in school. That six-year-old would come home and say, Mom, Dad, when I grow up, I'm going to be just like Pastor Scotty. And, and they said, well, what's Pastor Scotty do? Said, I don't know, but whatever he is, that's what I'm going to be like. <laughs> See, the inspiration of life to be God's servants Kids catch it. They're taught it. They see it from their youth. And we can have the greatest move of God's grace that our nation has ever seen in a revival in the church and the liberty returning to our nation. Because as you look out and you see this week that 5,000 National Guardsmen, troops are in Washington, D.C., it looks like a military state. And now we know they're going to stay till March. And I wouldn't doubt that there's soldiers in Washington, D.C. for a full four years. Because there's a crazy thing going on right now. A crazy thing going on. But in the midst of all of this, there's this incredible hope. I call him Mr. Sunshine. Samson, look at the times in which he was born. It says in Judges 13.1, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. For 40 years they lost their liberty and bondage to the Philistines. And then it says in verse 24 of that chapter, So the woman, that's Mrs. Manoah, that's Samson's mom, bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. What was the answer? Once again, it was the long game of a child. What about the, the shorter game? Well, that's a teenager that's almost ready to go, almost ready to fly the coop. We see God using people like that, like Joseph in Genesis 37.2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought a bad report to them of his, to his father. Joseph's 17 years old. It specifically tells us how old he is, and then we see the outcome of the tragedy that took place in his life and unfolded. And yet, do you believe Romans 8.28 for God? We know that God works all things together for good for the called and those who, are, are, who love him are called according to his purposes. So 
God takes the mess of Joseph's life. He puts some dreams in his heart for him to hang on to. And then his brothers hate his guts. They throw him into a pit. They're actually going to kill him. They say they're going to kill him. And then they think, well, let's make, Judah says, let's make some money instead. <laughs> they're good Jewish boys. Let's make some money. Right? And so they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And can you imagine, first of all, wanting to murder your brother, your 17-year-old brother? Now, granted, I grew up as the youngest of four. We fought like cats and dogs, but murder was never on the table. All right? And they sell him, and can you imagine, it says that when his brothers say, 22 years later, we saw the anguish of our brother, how he cried. He was, poor. He was crying as they, he, they sold him into slavery. And he's, don't, don't you think in Joseph's mind, like, when are you going to say, joke, it's a joke. It's no joke. Sold him into slavery. He goes there, now he's sold on the slave box in Egypt. Now get into Joseph's sandals for a minute. They sell slaves on the slaves' blocks, totally naked to be examined in a public place. Here I am. And he's bought by Potiphar, 17 years old. Can you imagine? He's bought, and Joseph, you would think Joseph would just be bitter. He's not going to serve God. He's not going to love God. Fooey on you, God. And Joseph's like, well, I'm here. I might as well run the show. So he just starts laboring at Potiphar's house pretty soon. Potiphar sees that God is with him. Potiphar doesn't even know God, but whoever, the true and living God, is all over this guy's life. And he says, you just run everything. And all he knows is the food that's put before him every day. Now, it would appear that Joseph finally has a good thing going. Just like at home he had a good thing going, his dad really loved him. And now Potiphar really loves him because his home is blessed because of him. And then, ah, there's always some fly in the ointment, isn't there? Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, casts longing eyes upon him. You know what that is, Right? She could have been on uh, the Egyptian Housewives program on a consistent basis, right? <laughs> Lusty lady. And she wasn't subtle about it. She says, lie with me. She was very aggressive. Now, she cast longing eyes on him. There's very few people in the Bible that the Bible describes how they appeared, but Joseph's one of them, 17 years old. It says that Joseph was handsome in form. That means he had a chiseled physique. Just naturally, that's the way he was born. And he was good-looking. He had model, drop-dead, movie star good looks, and he was this hunky guy and 17. So when she looked at him, she said, what? <gasps> this guy's a little haughty, right? And so she grabs a hold of him one day. Everybody's out of the house. She grabs a hold of him by his robe and says, let's go to bed. I mean, she's not a subtle chick at all. Now, I want to say that the Bible doesn't say anything about how Mrs. Potiphar looked, if she was as ugly as a mud fence, there would be not, it would not be hard to resist. It's like, I don't think on my worst day ever on the planet that that would ever happen. But it doesn't say that. And because Potiphar is a man of influence, she was probably quite attractive. And yet his character in God said, I'm not going to sin against God and I'm not going to sin against your husband. I'm not going to do it. So she grabs him. He wiggles out of his robe because she won't let him go. And he runs out of the house in his loincloth, literally his whitey tighties, has to run out of the house. And in that place, he goes to jail now as a sex offender. Does life get any worse? Your brothers hate your guts. They want to murder you. They sell you into slavery. Your boss's wife hits on you. Now you're a registered sex offender in jail. And then the baker and the 
uh, cupbearer or thrown into jail. They work for the king, and then he comes in, and, and Joseph's just like he did at Potiphar. Well, if I'm in prison, I might as well have a prison ministry. Might, might as well run the show. So the warden says, man, just run the prison. So Joseph does. And he asks the guy, hey, why are you guys sad? And they go, well, we had these bad dreams last night. We're not sure what they mean. And Joseph, because he has dreams, he can interpret dreams. He says, tell me your dream. He said, I'm going to tell you my dream, but will you just do this? I only ask one favor. Just tell Pharaoh that I don't belong to be here. I'm an innocent man. <laughs> now, anybody that's been in jail ministry, everybody in jail is innocent, <laughs> right? Not a guilty soul in there. Every now and then, if you meet a guilty soul, you're like, please get this guy out of here before he's corrupted. He actually thinks he's guilty. But this is what happens. They forget all about him for two years. And then you remember the story. Potiphar, I mean, uh, Pharaoh has a dream. And Joseph interprets that dream, and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, sometimes our life feels like it has been burned to the ground, and you're in a big pile of ashes. And yet, as you trust God as Joseph did, you rise out of those ashes. And what does Isaiah tell us? He gives us beauty for ashes. Right now, it seems like our nation is burning to the ground. As far as the agenda has swung so far left and progressively left that there's going to be nothing left but a pile of ashes to rule over. But just know this, God can raise up beauty from ashes. God can do that work through the revival of his people in the church and through us engaging in the process of being good citizens. You see, the teenager is the fast track to usefulness because you're right there at adulthood. You run on the doorstep. I was so encouraged at Charlie Kirk's event the Student Action Summit last month, and there was 1,800 high school and college kids there that were liberty-loving young people, and my heart just soared. I'm like, wow, there really is, because you see, the polls say, statistically, 70% of young people today either lean towards or have fully embraced socialism, 70%. And they're stepping into voting age. So even if President Trump would have won, brothers and sisters, socialism's coming. Why? Because the entire young generation has been indoctrinated by the public school system. This is the way to go. Because they haven't taught them history. For 6,000 years, socialism has never worked in a fruitful way for a nation in the history of the world. Not at once. But if you don't, what's the old adage? If you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Right? Just going right down that road. So the good news is, though, God will raise up the Josephs. He'll raise up the Davids. David is a man after God's own heart, as it says in 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. A teenager, we don't know, he's 15 or 16. He faces Goliath, and he takes him out, right? And he's the only one. Nobody else had the faith to do that. Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they get exiled to Babylon. They're going to be in the king's palace, working for the king. They go through a three-year indoctrination of their language, of their gods, of, of everything, and yet they keep their hearts pure to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But God uses them because they get the ear of the king, and God uses these four guys in a very uh, incredible way. We have Esther, we don't know how old, old Esther is, but with the story of Ahasuerus, he banishes his wife Vashti because she won't come parade herself at a big banquet that he's doing. So his nobles say, hey, get rid of her. She didn't respect you. She disrespected you. So you need a new wife. So they have this nationwide, 
right? Actually, 127 province beauty contest. Girls, can you imagine being in a beauty contest that looks like this? We're going to have a beauty contest, and those finalists that are there in the beauty contest, whether he chose 10 or 15 or 20, whatever, the finalists, they go through this whole spa thing for an entire year, six months of soaking in aloes and six months of beauty things. I mean, they're just totally, it's a spa action, ladies, like you've never seen in your whole life because they're preparing her to be a queen. And Esther's this young girl. She's drop-dead gorgeous. She gets recruited for this beauty contest. But those girls, on the night that they're with the king, they're going to have to be with the king sexually. And then if he doesn't want them as his wife or queen, then they'll just go into his harem as a concubine. Is that overwhelming or what, girls? Imagine you're in, you don't know this guy. You're going to be this, this, you just feel like you're, this piece of meat just being thrown up, you know, as a sacrifice to this king. How awful. Yet God in his sovereignty to protect Esther, to take care of Esther, that she's the one that gets chosen and the king has favor for her and they're together and she becomes the queen. She just thinks, this is amazing, but why did I come for this, to the kingdom for such a time as this? Because one of the king's right-hand men, a guy by the name of Haman, absolutely hates the Jews, and he gives their death sentence. On this day of the month, they're going to assassinate in all 127 provinces every single Jew. Imagine it. That, that's a genocide like nobody's business. And the king says, here's my, king, here's my ring, my signet ring. Just take that, and you can kill all the Jews you want. The king doesn't know that his wife is Jewish because she's kept that to herself. But Mordecai, her uncle, sends her this message in Esther 4, 4 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, she was tempted to be silent. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God will raise up a deliverer. But you and your father's house will perish. Don't think you just because you're the, the, the queen that you're not going to die because the law is for everybody and you're Jewish and they, it will become known and you'll be killed. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God in his providence and his sovereignty brought Esther to the right place at the right time to save an entire nation, an entire race of people. Don't you see God's long game so often is through children, through teenagers, through those who would step up and be used by God? Think of you're a parent and you get this law, you get an envelope in your mailbox that says this in Exodus 1.22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. If you have a son born to you, you've got to throw that kid into the Nile where there's hippopotamuses and crocodiles and they're going to be appetizers and snacks. Now put your son in that place. When my son is born, I always wondered what happens to parents when they have kids because they seem to go kind of bonkers. And then the grandparents are twice as bonkers. It's like there's a drop in IQ or something. Because, you know, your kids, you're proud of your kids, but then your kids have kids. It's really a miracle because the son-in-law that's the biggest idiot in the world, parents say, that is not worthy of my daughter had the most brilliant son on the planet. How'd that work? Right, skipped a whole generation or something? It's an old joke. But the thing is, 
Imagine when my, when my son was born, I knew for the first time what the Greek word storge meant. It means family love. Like there was something in my soul that this 23 of my chromosomes and 23 of my wife's chromosomes came together to make this child. And this is my son. And I wanted to show people like they've never seen a baby ever in their whole life. You ever seen the, a kid like this? People are like, that's exciting, Rick. You got a son. Great for you. No, no, you don't understand. And if I got a letter in the mail from the government that said, you got to throw that boy in the river and let crocodiles eat him. Can you imagine? Now, it tells us specifically <laughs> in Exodus 2, verse 2, when she saw Moses' mom, we have uh, Amram and Jochebed are their names. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, that she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, she runs up, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, his own mom. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you wages. It's the only mom in all of history that literally got paid for nursing her own child. Because Miriam watched, said, hey, you want me to go get a wet nurse for you? And she goes and gets her mom to nurse her, and she gets paid for it. You see, God's working in the midst of such incredible tragedy to bring about the Savior for the Jews. Eighty years God waited for Moses to finally get ready to come to Egypt to bring about liberty. God's into the long game, but you know, what do I do for the short game right now, you guys? Because this is the bottom line. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I have a hard time sometimes in my own soul keeping my heart right with Jesus in the midst of all this. I know you guys are good people, you don't struggle with that, but I'm just gonna be open with you about my own struggle, okay? And that, that struggle, you see, is I realize that God wants me to be filled with faith, hope, and love. Filled with trust in God that he has this, he can handle it. Hope, the certainty of coming good for our future, and walk in love with even people I disagree with. Because this is the real challenge in the polarization that's happening at work and in school and on social media, right? There's a polarization. There's us and them. We have to build that bridge because as a Christian, I can't be like I used to be. Like, I can't just return evil for evil. I grew up moving from school to school to school, so I hate bullies. Because every school we went to, my brother and I, we had to throw down the first week and scrap because otherwise the bullies get you under their thumb and they start messing with you. So you have to fight. You have to fight all the time. 
And so I start my new school in Paradise Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. I go to Campobello. I'm in the third grade, and it's the first week. And I uh, have a next-door neighbor that's also, he's a couple of grades older than me, but him and I, Cameron, are playing on the playground, and Scott Ledoon shows up. Now, Scott Ledoon's one of those guys that you, you think he's shaving in the sixth grade. I mean, he's just like full-grown. You know, anybody like that is like... Man, you got facial hair, and you're this big bully. And he comes over to my friend, and he hits him in the chest really hard and knocks Cameron to the ground. And I look up at him, and I'm just this pipsqueak. I'm in third grade. But my brother and I had a deal. Every school we went to, he said, whoever picks on you, throw down, and if you can't whip them, I'll whip them. And if you can't or I can't, let's whip them together. I mean, that was kind of our mindset. And so it's like, okay. And, and so I just thought, well, here we go. Scott, and I hit Scott Ladoon as hard as I could in the face. I mean, it stung his face, but it actually broke my hand. I got boxer's fracture in my hand, and I'm in the third grade. And fortunately, a teacher saw after I hit him, and he was coming to annihilate me because there was not a chance on the planet I was going to survive this without a good, sound beating. And so I go to the nurse's office, and my hand's all swollen up. And the nurse said, what'd you do to your hand? And I said, ah, uh, this kid hit me with a hula hoop. That's what happened with my hand. <laughs> Back then, I'm old, so hula hoops, you know, were a thing. And, and the nurse rolled her eyes and she smiled. She said, yeah, yeah, right. A hula hoop broke your hand. I, I don't think so. And I'm in a cast. Now, I'm in dreading Monday. But fortunately, my brother, he didn't even speak to me about it. He, he, just, he just went to the bus stop. He found out where the Scott Ladoon was. And he went and he just whipped his tail. And Scott never bothered me again. But you see, I grew up hating bullies. And there's something that rises up in me when I feel like I'm being bullied. And I feel like this is a season of people bullying us. And just shut up. And, you know, their idea of unity is you conform, and if you say exactly what I tell you to speak and think, then we're unified. But that's not America. America is an exchange of ideas. Even if you disagree with me or I disagree with you, we can still love each other as neighbors. That's called tolerance, right? And that's how we have to build a bridge to people. But now... The narrative that the whole generation has been trained in academia, a whole generation now that is addicted to the big tech, if you disagree with them, they just cancel culture you. They just cut you off. A, a pastor that I spoke to last week up at San Jose, he said he shared his testimony on their Vimeo channel. With 80, he has 89 different stories on there. He shared his testimony about coming out of homosexuality into a life with Christ and choosing heterosexual lifestyle, and they, they shut down his entire channel, like just, you're done. Now, he, it, it's okay to come out from heterosexual and go into homosexuality and be praised, but if you go the other direction, your channel's cut off. Your, your narrative doesn't, it, 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 that's hate speech, saying you need to turn from that. I'm like, what kind of crazy nation are we in? So, I have to get my heart right because otherwise, I'm wanting to fight. So I'm going to fight in a peaceful, loving way. But first, there's a couple of things I had to do. I had to get rid of some bitterness and unforgiveness. It tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as even as God in Christ forgave you. I've had to let go of some bitterness and I've had to forgive the overall establishment. Not that I want to change community involvement and getting the right people elected through policy. 
But that's different than coming at it in a very carnal or fleshly way. I had to let go of some bitterness and unforgiveness because you know what? When I just talk to normal people, pretty soon it just starts pewing everywhere I go. And people don't want to talk to me anymore, right? Because we get too, too bent on that. So I had to deal with that in my own soul. Maybe you've had that struggle. Then the Lord tells me to bless and to pray for my enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So he says, bless those and pray for those. And we're to pray for kings and those who are in authority. It tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So I'm to pray God's blessings upon the governmental leaders, and I'm to pray for my enemies. This is really efficient in prayer because they're one and the same at this season of my life. Pray for God's blessing. Pray that God works in their life. Pray that God does something wonderful because you see as a Christian, this is how we overcome evil. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If our rhetoric and our actions and our lifestyle begins to reflect people that don't know God, brothers and sisters, we're going the wrong direction. And through simple obedience, seeking to let go and forgive, to pray for God's work, I have prayed from the time I got saved the first president I was able to pray for and voted for was President Ronald Reagan. Then I prayed for George Herbert Bush. Then I prayed for Bill Clinton. Right? And then I prayed for George W. Bush. Then I prayed for Barack Obama. And I prayed for Vice President Biden at the time. And now I am praying for President Biden and Harris and Congress and Pelosi and all them, and I'm praying for God's blessing to be poured upon them that they would gain wisdom and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm praying for. Because if it can happen at the highest levels, you know, I can't, if I went to Washington, D.C., I can't get close to anybody. But when I pray, I can reach heaven. And heaven can reach anybody that heaven wants to reach by God's grace. Amen? So the weapons of our warfare have to be pointed in the right direction. We're not going to become militant. We're not breaking into uh, the Senate. Even when Christians gather very peacefully down at the courthouse this Thursday, nobody's coming to, you know, nobody's coming to be violent or hateful. We're going to be praying for love and blessings. And if the case is Jesus, when they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers, they were gambling for his clothes. He's naked on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He gave us the example. But it doesn't mean, this is the thing, in this season, we have to do two things that Nehemiah did. Nehemiah, when he was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, it says, with one hand they carried a sword to fight and defend themselves from the enemy, and the other one hand they built. So we want to build up God's kingdom, and we also want to fight for liberty in a peaceful way. So we're going to build up God's kingdom. Next week, we're going to have a baptism. People that have believed in Christ, they're going to follow the Lord in baptism. And what a joy to follow the Lord. So we're going to build up God's kingdom, and we're going to continue to fight for liberty for the cause 
of God's people so that we can continue. Because if not, we will be in an underground church in 10 years, hiding out. Years ago, my wife and I ministered to 122 Iranians as they fled the nation for a week to get some instruction. On top of a roof in Istanbul, Turkey, we're ministering to these people that were just months before Muslims, and 10 of the pastors couldn't come because they were on the watch list, and they were telling us these incredible stories, you guys, unbelievable stories, because it's a capital crime to convert somebody from Islam to Christianity there. You can not only throw you in jail, but you can be executed for it. They said, we will pray all day at the uh, at the marketplace holding one Bible and obviously covertly, and we'll pray all day just for the Holy Spirit to show us one person in that marketplace. Sometimes they'll be there from sunup to sundown, and they'll pray for that one person. The Holy Spirit will lead them to the right person to give them that Bible because if they give it to the wrong person, they're going to jail. And my wife and I, my wife, so, you know, her big blue eyes, she's like, well, if you're afraid of going to jail and being executed, I mean, how do you do this? And they put my wife and I both, we were embarrassed afterwards. They, laugh, they smiled and they laughed and said, we were willing to die for Allah, the false God. We would gladly die for Jesus. <laughs> and Christians won't even make a stand for Jesus, let alone die for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's time you get serious about our faith. Our faith to have liberty in Christ Jesus and to go through the, the proper channels of a peace-loving people to change the governmental leaders so that we can get policies changed. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible love. We thank you for your incredible grace. We pray that your spirit would do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think in this moment, at this time, right now. And we pray, Lord, as we just surrender our hearts to you. Lord, cleanse our own hearts. So we're just in an attitude of prayer right now. Maybe you want to join me and open your heart by faith to invite a flood of God's forgiveness to your soul, a flood of his love, joy, and peace into your soul to set you free from the grudging bitterness and unforgiveness that's been growing in our souls. We don't want to be spewing that, Lord. We want to be spewing your, your love. And yet, sharing the truth in love. If you want to join me in prayer, just opening your heart, pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my anger, my hatred, my bitterness. I realize I've, I've hurt some people with some of my language and the, the rhetoric of things. Please forgive me. Help me share the truth in love, Father. Help me stand for you and for liberty. Jesus, thank you that you can take the mess of my life, the mess of our nation, and that you can produce something beautiful as you fill us with faith to be your instruments in these coming days. Lord, we surrender to you and pray that a breath of fresh air, the breath and the wind of revival 
would fill our hearts and our lives with an excitement about who you are, Jesus, and what you're going to do in our nation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.